Hey everyone, and welcome to another edition of Sports with Friends. This is episode 295. It's our first podcast in the month of April. And that's only significant because the guest we have this week, I wanted during the month of March. We decided on Sports with Friends for the first time, we were going to dedicate the month of March to Women's History Month. And it turned out to be something I thought about, I tried, and when it happened, I reached out to this young lady immediately. I thought that would be perfect. And our schedules didn't work out. And I thought about it and I said, yeah, but April, that's not the, the month anymore. And are people gonna say, oh, this is now becoming sports with only female friends and what, what, what are we gonna do? And I said, just screw it. I, she has a story to tell and I wanna hear it. And so this is a best chance to have Julie DeCaro. Julie, of course, writes for Deadspin. She's been a sports radio host. She has also been a lawyer. She yeah. is also an author of a book called Sidelined Sports Culture and Being a Woman in America. And if that's not a title that hooks you, I don't know what it will be. Julie DeCaro, welcome to Sports with Friends. I'm so glad we finally got to do this. Me too. And you know, honestly, women deserve more than one month. Okay, so we'll fine. just take so I have to do the whole, the month. whole yeah. April. Do I have we'll to do take, all of April? We'll take March through October. Oh boy. Okay. You're taking over this podcast. Now you can host <laughs> next week. That's good. <laughs> you know, it was funny. Um, when we uh, started having uh, female guests, the reaction has been really, really positive. And it was something that I, it was just organic because we had two straight women in the first two weeks. And then I had a guest fall through Jake Reynolds from the New Jersey devils. Uh, was supposed to come on. And once he canceled, I, well, he didn't cancel. He's coming on soon. But once that happened, I said, wait a second, let's just get all ladies. And it was amazing. And you do a podcast as well called the ladies room. Mm -hmm. Jane and I, yep. With Jane, Jane McManus, who has been on this podcast a, a lot. Let's start there. How did you decide to start a podcast? And, you know, what, what are your, what are your thoughts on the medium? So I've had a bunch of podcasts <laughs> going back to the days when uh, it was just uh, blog talk radio. Remember, is blog talk radio still a thing? Blog talk radio you, helped create sports with friends. Yeah. And so, you know, I had a Cubs, uh, gosh, first before that, I had a baseball podcast with Karen Rose, who now is known better as a music writer. But back then she was writing a ton about baseball. And right. um, God, that had to be back in like, I don't know what, 2007, 2008, something ridiculous like that. Wow. So um, I've had a bunch of different iterations of podcasts with different people and some by myself. And, um, you know, when I lost my job in radio, Deadspin reached out to me, I think almost within the hour after I announced that I had wow. lost my job. Um, and one of the, uh, one of the things that they said they wanted me to do was, was, you know, we wanted to get their podcast going and they wanted me to do a podcast. And, um, you know, so it was just sort of one of those things as I was getting up to speed, it was just kind of in the back burner, didn't really think about it. And my editor, Eric Barrow was telling me, you know, there's this writer I really love. Her name is Jane McManus. And I'd love to put you guys together for a podcast. And I was like, I know Jane, I've known She's Jane for years. She is a rock star. I have no idea why we hadn't thought of it before that. I think I assumed Jane was just too busy and like too big time for me to do nice. a podcast with. <laughs> um, but it wound up being, you know, she really missed doing her show that, you know, the, the trifecta and I really missed uh -huh. doing a radio show too. And so, you know, we were like, why didn't we think of this before? But, um, you know, it wound up working out for everybody involved, which was terrific. And, and we've been having a great time. The, and one of the things I love about podcasting in unlike radio is they don't compete. So if you're listening to the score in Chicago, you're not listening to WMVP. Like there, there, there's no yeah. two ways about it. For sure. uh, but in a podcast, listen to the ladies room, download sports with friends, listen to the hall of justice, whatever you want to listen to. That's your leisure. And I, I, that's why I'm a big fan of the medium when you were in college. So let's now go backwards. When you were in college, you wanted law you went to law school to be in sports radio there's something that doesn't connect because i always yeah. thought the only people who the only people go from sports radio to law school because they get smart not the other way around yeah there's a there's a ridiculous number of ex-lawyers working in sports media 
which is a whole, I have a lot of theories on that. There's like, that's a whole other oh, thing. Okay. Um, I wanted to be a Cubs play-by-play announcer. That's why I went to, um, to, to journalism school. And I nice. um, wound up being way more interested in writing than I ever was in broadcasting. And, you know, at the time I graduated, there weren't a ton of women you could point to and say, you know, that's what I want to do. Um, there were a few, and I couldn't figure out how to get there from where I was. It, ju- it just seemed like there was no real clear path. Where'd so you I go gave to school, up, if I may I ask. went Indiana University, Ernie Pyle School of Journalism. Of course you did. There you go. You sure you didn't so, go um, to my high school? Uh, I, where'd you go to high school? In New Jersey. <laughs> no. Oh, just no. half of my high school went to Indiana. Oh, yeah, I know. There's Michigan. a huge. Are you from Marlboro by any chance? I am. Are you really? I, I grew. I went to Marlboro High School. I'm I know more people. I know so many people from Marlboro at IU. It was insane. <laughs> we were like, do they just ship you guys here like on a bus or how does this work? Awesome. Yeah, it's bizarre. Um, yeah. So anyway, yeah. I, you know, I went to law school. The I conversation after this podcast, by the way, folks, is going to be a lot more interesting than this. Episode just an hour being week. like, do you know this person? Do you know that person? Well, that's um, Jewish geography, and that's what Sports with Friends is. Every guest right, is a right, friend right. or a friend of a friend. We play Jewish geography. Yeah, like half my sorority is from Marlboro. Of course Anyway, and North Caldwell. That hell, yeah. Anyway, um, where was I? Oh, so I went, so I was a lawyer, and um, I, you know, when, Wait, when so you're, blogs... So you're glossing over, you were a lawyer. Like, what law was... <laughs> what what so law? Was a, and once you're a lawyer, like, isn't that... I don't that... think anyone cares about that. Okay, so that's why I was glossing over it. Um, I was a public defender. And then oh, I worked, which is the, like the greatest job in the world. And I think when I retire from writing, I will go back to being a public defender someday. Wow. Um, I practiced family law and I also worked with domestic violence and sexual assault victims, getting them orders of protection from abusers okay. and rapists. So I, I really saw sort of both sides of it, which That's is like probably why- really I, doing good work for the world. Yeah, I, I mean, I was always really interested in public interest law and social justice and you know things along those lines. Um, whether it was in the courtroom or whether it was in writing. So that's sort of what I did. Um, and then uh, when blogs became a thing, I was, you know, looking at the SB Nation blogs and I sort of hung out on the Cubs blog and there were hardly any women there, if there were any, when I first got there. And um, eventually, you know, you used to be able to post it's- your own stories on the right rail there. And I okay. sort of developed a following that way because I would put these, you know, baseball diaries in there. Um now, eventually, I'm not losing my gentleman card, but around what time are you speaking? Around 2006 ish. Okay. All right. 2006. Yeah. I mean, there were like five SB Nation blogs. The Cubs were one of them. Mm-hmm. And um, I hung out there, um, developed a following, as all blogs do. One day there was a huge fight blow up. I left, took like half the blog with me, and had my own blog that eventually got picked up by the Chicago Tribune. Oh, nice. Um, so uh, yeah, so it had a lot more exposure and, and that was great. And then um, eventually the Chicago Tribune said, you know, would you consider coming to work for us and running our blog network and teaching other people to do what you oh, did wow. with yours? So I did that for a little bit. And like you told the law gig, you're like, I'm out of here. Like this is, yeah. this is it. This is my calling. That's so fascinating. Well, by that time I had my own practice and here's the thing about having your own practice. People are like, oh, be your own boss. Yeah, you're your own boss. You're also your own secretary, your own accountant, your own tax person, person who sends out the bills, person who drives to the post office. You're your own everything. Yep. So I was I was ready to be done with that. Also, if there's any area of law that will crush your soul, it is family law. Just mm, awful. Because it's heart-wrenching. You meet the worst people at the worst time of their there lives. You, yeah. you meet people who will spend $30,000 over five minutes in visitation time. It's insane. This episode is presented by GoClip. And you know, the COVID-19 pandemic is still here, even though we're all excited about the vaccine and the possibilities of returning to whatever normal is, we still need to wear masks. And GoClip is a new product that's out that can actually make it easier to wear masks. Jeff Eagles is the co-founder and chief product officer of GoClip. And Jeff, Jeff, tell everybody what this is. Well, this is a, a great new product. It's it's a, a brand. It's part of a brand new category of products that we're calling mask optimization products. You know, there's a ton of different masks out there in the marketplace that people are using, uh, from medical grade to, you know, sort of homespun uh, styles and you know homegrown businesses. 
And we've really looked for solutions that make wearing all of those masks uh, more comfortable, more convenient, and a safer experience. So this particular product allows you to uh, attach the ear straps of a mask um, to your piece of headwear, and it works with all different types of headwear, to relieve the pressure of ear straps uh, off of your ears uh, and make it a lot more comfortable to wear face masks. Basically, it's two clips that you can clip to a hat, a scarf. What, what other things can you can you attach these to? Can it be the straps of a helmet? From baseball cap to knit caps, um, to headbands, uh, to visors, to surgeon's caps. I mean, we've tested this on all different types of headwear. Um, so yeah, it attaches wherever uh, on the hat that you need it to attach to provide the most optimal fit of the mask. So if your straps need to uh, be a little bit further back or a little bit further forward, depending on the length of the straps and the elasticity of the straps. Basically, this helps you keep the mask on, it keeps it on in the right place, and it doesn't wrap around your ears. Exactly. So it's a lot more comfortable, especially for people wearing, having to wear masks for uh, six, seven, eight hours at a time. You can imagine shift workers, restaurant workers, food prep, frontline caregivers. Uh, creates a, a lot of relief of that ear pain. It also um, provides different storage options for your mask. So when you're not using your mask, um, it allows you to store it up over your forehead, over the bill of your hat. For example, um, instead of putting that mask on the car seat, on the restaurant table, on the um, in your pocket and all these different places that really uh, compromise the safety of the mask. And they come in black, white, navy, royal, and red. You can check them out at their website, thegoldclip.com. Jeff Eagles, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Seth. Don't forget to go to www.thegoldclip.com and check out GoClip because you still need to wear a mask. So you're writing, when did the radio become part of your world? Because that's when I found you. Yeah. So one day I'm sitting at my desk at the Chicago Tribune one and day, I get in just random one day, one day. Ra seriously, randomly. I get this email from the uh, it's from Todd Manley WGN. Uh -huh. And he says, you know, we are going to start a 24 hour sports talk station and we need people to be on it and we want you to be on it. So I literally got in the elevator, went upstairs, talked to people at WGN, came back down. And, you know, that night I talked to my husband and the next day I was like, you know what? I quit. I'm going into radio. That's crazy. And that wow. was, and that was it. And then, so what were your early radio jobs? So I was an update anchor at first, which is like the thing that all women have to do. It's like, if you're a guy, you can go right to being a host, but women have to do all these other things first. So one of them is update anchor. And, uh, I, you know, I had no well, idea what I was I had doing. To do update anchor. Yeah. I had no idea what I was doing. I once gave, and I was just trying to imitate what I had heard on sports talk radio. Cause I was, I listened all the time. And, and once I gave like, the the wild card update like in april you know what i mean i was just like i was clueless but i mean i got to make a lot of mistakes i was a complete moron for like a good couple months um and then eventually they started letting me host like you know fill in for people and stuff and when that station on went WGN. under on wg it was called the game it was 87 right. 7 the game yep, i remember we had like the blackhawks games on there and stuff yep. and um when that went under I got a call from Mitch Rosen at 670 The Score, which is the top sports oh, station in Chicago, and said, um, you know, hey, would you consider coming over here? So I moved over to 670, did updates there for a couple of years, and then, um, you know, full time, Mitch, like this was a full time gig. You know, it never it was what I was doing full time, but it, I was always a part time employee, okay. always never went beyond that, even when I had my own show. Um, and this was in their CBS days. Like they weren't even, the, it was CBS. Intercom yeah. hadn't taken over the, the correct. The, and CBS stations were good. Intercom stations were not as good. <laughs> so one day, you know, I kept saying, I kept wanting to host. We have a history I, on that podcast of saying it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I write quite a bit about Intercom in the book and my feelings about them. But really, um, <laughs> yes. I, I did not have a great relationship with at least the HR department under Intercom, but okay. um, I uh, I kept telling Mitch I wanted to host. And so eventually he was like, all right, just like everyone happens to everyone in radio, they just throw you in the deep end and you either sink or swim. And I figured out was how it to like swim. like an overnight shift or a holiday? I want to say it was like a Saturday from yeah. like six to 10. And, uh -huh. and, and I was with, they paired me with another woman who had never done any radio and she was like 24 years old. 
So between the two of us, we had no idea what we were doing. I was supposed to be driving. I, we were, it was close. It was probably the worst radio ever. But, but was it fun? It was fun. And, you know, and then I, um, you know, I eventually just got over worrying about sounding stupid or, or whatever and developed a following and eventually, um, you know, got slotted into the regular rotation. So you're in the, you're on the radio, you're, you're, mm -hmm. you're, you're somewhat full, you know, you're, you're a presence on this, on this radio station. When does social media become part of your life? Because what, what I find is social media changed radio. Social yeah, media so. suddenly became more important than radio. And I think radio is dying a slow death. I, I make no I do secret too. about that. I do too. So when did social media become something you did? And when was it something you embraced? Well, I know when it was something I did because I just had my 12th anniversary on Twitter like two days ago. I tell you. <laughs> yeah, which I think, honestly, I was like, this is nothing to celebrate. This is an indictment of my sanity and my right. inability to get off this stupid platform. Okay. Um, that so is it was one of the questions I was going to ask you. <laughs> why are you still on <laughs> Yeah, no, I don't know. Well, no, I do know why. Um, I'm not sure it's a valid excuse, but I do know why. Okay. Um, so, God, when did it? I mean, 2013, I wrote an article for Dead spin um about Jameis winston and the reason i did was because i had seen so many people talking about his victim and saying well she texted him afterwards so she's lying why would you do that if someone raped you and um you know i found her actions after she was allegedly raped to be exactly the same as mine after i was raped and so i wrote a story about that for deadspin and i said you know just because it takes a while for her to call it rape doesn't mean it's not rape and that's when i learned that fsu that's when i learned that there was quote, like insert team Twitter. Like this was FSU Twitter, just like a bomb. Um, and that was really my first experience with social media like that. Before that, I just been like happily tweeting. Do you remember when on Sunday nights on Twitter, when everyone used to tweet about like to catch a predator and Twitter was like this really innocent place where people were nice to each other. Like I, I've had, I've had a different Twitter experience than you. I'm sure. First of all, I never read that you were raped. I did not know that. So, mm. um, and you're welcome to talk about it as much or as little as, as possible because I'm curious, but I'm not prying. Um, social media for me, I joined it in 2009 because I was working at ESPN at the time and they were going to start it for me. Mm. And I said, well, if you're going to do it, I'm going to do it. At least I'll be in charge of it it's, if it's going to have my name on it. And I had nothing but positivity, like I, my, some of my favorite things. And I've told this story many, many times. And it's one of the reasons I created this podcast in 2015. My broadcast partner um, and best friend uh, was killed. And I'm sorry, in 2015, Daryl Hamilton. Um, and uh, if you guys want to know who and this is for the audience, if you guys want to know anything about Daryl Hamilton, uh, episode 100 of the podcast, we dedicated to him. Uh, he was killed in a murder suicide in, in 2015. What I found was the best form of therapy was social media. Mm. I found it to be people, strangers would go, hey, I used to listen to you guys. Uh, I'm so sorry. And, you know, you guys made me laugh. And, that, you know, like that, that kind of strangers. And that was the most therapeutic thing uh, in, in, in existence. Um, what I, I started this new podcast with a tech expert, this guy, Shelly Palmer. It's called TechStream, if you want to get it wherever you can get podcasts. Um, and we talked about when social media became toxic. Mm -hmm. And the prevailing thought is that it's in the last five years. But mm -hmm. what a tech person said to me is that it actually has just been a mirror of society. The toxic nature of society has always been there. It's just we didn't know how to use it. And more people are now using it. And if three million, if three billion people have a Facebook account, there's going to be some awful people that have a Facebook account. Whereas 15 years ago, it was just the fan who remembered Daryl from playing or remembered mm -hmm. the radio show. You, you see the difference? I do. Um, you know, I, I there was toxicity on uh, Internet message boards you know, back in the early 2000s. The AOL chat so, rooms. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, when I started blogging in like, you know, 2005, 2006, when I discovered blogs, um, you know, there was there was a lot of toxicity there as well. Like, like comments, comments yeah. on blogs? Yeah, like, you know, like that show uh, from the girl with the, uh, from Saturday Night Live, Shrill. 
Yeah, exactly right. She writes a blog and all the comments are brutal. Yep. And she goes to their house. Yeah, I mean, you'd, you know, you'd you'd say something about baseball and someone would respond, shut up, you stupid, see you next Tuesday. You know, I mean, it was that kind of thing. Um, Mm. So it definitely didn't, I mean, it was definitely was there before social media was even there. Um, I don't know. I have have a lot of thoughts about when it got bad and why, Uh, but there was a time early on, maybe it was a brief time when, when Twitter was fun. You know, when it really was a fun place to hang out, it really was like going to a sports bar um, and just hanging out with all these people that had the same interests that you do. But very quickly, um, I think that we learned that if you are, and I think as long as you play by the rules on Twitter, it's still fun. But if you are a woman with an opinion on any of the hot button topics, that is, you know, where they're talking about race, abortion, um, equal pay you know, any of those things like, you know, domestic violence, sexual assault, like those are the things that are going to get you absolutely killed. And if you're a person that talks about those things, if you talk about politics, if you talk about the environment, well, now I mean, it's COVID. If you, it, I, yeah. I lost a thousand followers when I said, wear a mask. And I also said college football shouldn't have happened. Yeah. I, I, I mean, as, as long as you, you know, sort of don't say anything anyone can argue with, I'm sure Twitter's still a great place, but if you have opinions and you share them, you are going to get destroyed. And unfortunately, women get it in a very different way than men do. It's much more gendered. It's much more violent and it's much more sexualized. So you get, you know, I hope someone rapes you to death, you know, as just a common thing that people say to you. And when you see that your reaction is, do you block them? Do you, do you stop it? I'm very liberal with the block button. Um, it depends on the day. Uh, yeah, and, and the thing is too, is like, you know, people just wear being blocked like a badge of honor. You know, it, it's, it's not, it's, I mean, you were so upsetting to someone that they, you know, <laughs> took you out of the rotation. Although so, for anybody who's a loyal listener to this podcast, I do love the idea that Noah Syndergaard blocked me on Twitter. I've been, I, I feel cause similarly because he, he was a jerk. And I I'm feel sorry. similarly about Kurt Schilling and Ben Roethlisberger blocking me. So good, I, I, good. I get that. I get that. Well, Kurt um, Schilling's a tool. Yes. Um, I block people and, you know, it depends on the day. I have days when I just laugh at it and I have other days where it really gets to me. And I think it just sort of depends on what's going on with me on that day and time. And I've heard, you know, I feel like I was on, I did a radio interview here in Chicago the other day and the, the host said, well, you know, you got to get a thicker skin. He's like a 70 year old white second. man. The host has, said that to you? Yeah. Uh, I'd punch yeah. that person. In the He's, he has no idea. He's never had anyone say the kind of things to him that they say to women. So I was just sort of like, yeah, whatever. I, I don't think anybody can like wade through this stuff day after day after day and not find themselves affected by it somehow. No. And, and, and I would imagine that some of your experiences on social media uh, led you to writing the book. Um, my question to you is, did anybody ever pressure you to be on social media, whether it was a radio station, whether it was a, an editor, whether it's your publisher? Does anybody want is anybody saying, listen, for the sake of your career, be on social media? Because I would respect the hell out of you if you literally just disappeared from Twitter. No one no one told me be controversial or, you know, say what you you know feel kind of thing. I, I never got that. Um, when I was at the Tribune, part of my job was convincing older people in the newsroom that this was a good thing for them, that social media was going to broaden their audience, right? So part of that, that I guess I sort of- fun conversations. <laughs> yeah, let me tell you, 75-year-old uh, columnist really wants to hear from me why he needs yeah, to be yeah. on social media. Um, you know, no one, I mean, definitely we got emails from CBS, from Entercom, you know, telling us about the importance of being on social media and growing your audience really? and promoting the shows. So, I mean, we know that for that, for sure. Um, I think that now it is more pressure of just knowing what's going to happen if you leave social media. So in the book, I talked to Kristen Ledlow of NBA TV, who got off Twitter because of, you know, being stalked and harassed. And she was like, you know, in the three months I was gone, I lost 10,000 followers. And, and especially, you know, in this day and age where your following gets you jobs, can sell a book for you, can do, you know, it, it, it's difficult to imagine how I would continue to do those things without being on social media. And I keep trying to find ways, you know, I keep wanting to pull a Lindy West and just be like, I'm out. Um, I, you know, uh, you know, Chrissy Teigen infamously did it. I saw Ijoma Iluo talking about how she wants to leave Twitter. I think we all want to leave, but if you're a person who 
your job depends in part on your audience and how many people listen to you. Right. It's and how many people read your work. It, it's difficult. I mean, you got to have a no, huge I, I, that, platform that's, behind that's you. That's where I was going with this. That, yeah. That's what I was thinking. You're 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 caught in this web where. Yeah. I like I said, I'm not telling you, hey, you know what? If I were you, I'd get the hell off this thing. Like I I, I understand. It is an absolute cesspool. If I were me, I'd get off this thing. Yeah, I mean, no, you're right. (laughs) You're exactly right. I mean, Chrissy Teigen is able to get off because she has 131 million followers on Instagram. So, you know, she's still got that platform. But for a lot of us, we concentrated on Twitter. That's where the mass of our audience is. And if you just walk away from that, who promotes your stuff? Right. That's kind of where we are. You're right. It's a trap. We'll get back to Sports with Friends in just a moment. But first, did you know that I have another podcast that I do? It's like Sports with Friends, but it's a little different. It's about the superhero sci-fi universe. I have been a fan of comic books, animation, movies. And when I started the Hall of Justice podcast, we wanted to do it for adults. Why did I name it the Hall of Justice? Because if you're old enough to know what the Hall of Justice is, you're our demographic. The idea of the show is to take the same passion that fans have for sports, but to bring it to the superhero genre. We have movie reviews where we spoil the movie. No worry, we warn you so that you can see it first. We also have celebrity guests where we interview actors, voice actors. The Hall of Justice podcast comes out every Thursday wherever you get your podcasts. When did you decide, what was the breaking point that you said, uh, because literally every other story about your career has started with the words one day. Um, (laughs) What was the day that you said, there's a book in this, like I have something here. I had a publisher reach out to me um, and say, yeah, from a small publishing house and say, you know, I see you tweeting this stuff on Twitter and you really should be not giving this away for free and that's just screaming into the void, but putting it into something and organizing well, it. You know, and there's putting no it check into a book. for coming on the podcast though. Yes, I do. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it, and it's funny because then once I got an agent and worked, you know, worked up a proposal, then he didn't, then they didn't want the book. Really? Uh, wound up selling it to someone else. But it, I really hadn't, I mean, I think every writer has their like, someday I'm going to write a book thing in their head. Um, but this guy sort of gave me, um, a path on how to get there. How do you, how do you get an agent? How do you contact a publisher? How do you put together a proposal? Like, then I started thinking about that stuff and I was really lucky because the comedian, Josh Gondelman, who I was just, I don't even know how I know Josh, I guess from Twitter. I was um, just sort of commiserating with him one night about um, books and agents. And, you know, I had this agent that had completely ghosted me and he was like, do you want me to introduce you to my agent? And so he did. And then the rest of it was sort of history because without my agent, I wouldn't have been able to sell this book. So really give him a lot of credit. Uh, Agents have their place. I, I, I I wholly respect that. When I eventually write uh, my memoir, uh, there'll be a chapter on agents God, and how many, I, I mean, I, I could do a whole episode just on how many agents I can't stand. Um, <laughs> they, they, um, they, they certainly have their, have their place. Um, what in the book, um, how much of the story is your story versus stories you've amassed because you're also a journalist. So you were able to talk to other people and do other interviews. What would you say the percentage? Is it 50-50, 60-40, something like that? I think it's like 30% memoir, 30% reported, um, and then 30% other people's stories, hmm. if that makes sense. And because I knew that if, if it was just me, there were going to be a bunch of people that rolled their eyes and said, oh God, this is because you're so obnoxious and everyone hates you so much. And if you were just a different kind of woman, you know, if you are a more likable person. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's what they want to say, right? Or they do say sometimes. If you are a more likable person, if you weren't so obnoxious, then, you know, more people would like you and would would listen to you. And so I had to put, I felt like I had to include other women, um, including women that are extremely popular and have extremely big profiles because, and big platforms, because I needed people to know this is not just my story. This is typically what it's like for women working in media. You know, it, it's interesting. Um, during the month when we were looking for literally women to have on the show, um, we had one person with 300 followers and one person with 1.2 million followers. 
and it mm. was wild. It, it, it was wild. And I, I give credit to every person we had. We had a, an amazing month. Katrina Adams, the former head of the United States uh, Tennis Association. She was our first guest. Devin Caney, who's the host for the National Lacrosse League. She was incredible. Christy Winter Scott. She's a broadcaster for the Washington Wizards and Mystics, former college basketball player. She was incredible. Uh, and then we had Heidi Browning. Uh, we had the uh, the CMO and executive vice president of the NHL, which was totally wild. She has 300 followers, and yet her job is social media. And yeah. it, was, it, was, it was so interesting. And then we had Lisa Ann, who is a porn star, who literally went from that to serious. And one of the greatest lines from that podcast is she gets, she welcomes the, she doesn't welcome, she tolerates the sexual notifications because she did that for 20 years. What she loves is when someone criticizes her opinion on Deshaun Watson, because that mm -hmm. means that they're actually listening to her. And I thought that was really fascinating as well. What I, so, so during the course of the month, I asked a couple of questions. One of the questions is, do you agree that Nowadays, when and when I say nowadays, not just 2021 post pandemic, the last four or five years, there is an objective of news directors, program directors, general managers, editors to showcase women more that they are getting there. And I teach, you know, I teach uh, college courses and I believe that the women in my class have a much better shot at a sports career than the men, because for the men, there's a, they're a dime a dozen. They're so pedestrian and there's nothing there. Whereas I think when you and I were coming up, I think we're similar in age that when we were coming up, it was literally the opposite. Do you sense a change in that you're seeing more young women getting more opportunities than ever before? Depends on what you're talking about, right? I mean, uh, yeah, we see uh, more women doing high profile things like calling a Warriors game or calling a, a Toronto Raptors game in an all women booth, you know, which is great. But it happens once a year during Women's History Month. And then you sort of go back to obscurity. Jane and I just talked to Kate Scott for our most recent podcast. And, you know, we were saying that we're all looking forward to the day when we when it just when shakes out news. that when Beth you, Mowens is not news right when it just shakes out that way that it's all women because that's the way the schedule ended up um you know and, and I do see a lot of young women getting opportunities but a lot of the opportunities are still very limited they're still throwing young women into the role of sideline reporter or social media expert which you know sideline reporter to me is just crazy that that's a you know, a job where you put someone who you think doesn't know as much about football, because that is one of the toughest jobs out there. And, you know, Hannah Storm and, and Andrea Kramer and Pam Oliver and Laura Oakman will tell you, they spend as much time prepping for that game as the guys in the booth do. And they, they have to distill their stuff down into 30 second sound bites. Um, that is not a job. And that's not an entrance level job. But that's where women are getting pushed. So what I want to see are more women in so, situations where so is it a situation where there should be that 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 women shouldn't have those opportunities or should they, they should have those have opportunities, others? but they shouldn't be the only opportunity. Okay. I want women okay. in positions where they are giving their opinion and sharing their expertise, not just regurgitating what the men tell them or not just soliciting opinion from the men. So like you can be the named host of the show, you can be the star of the show, but if you're only the moderator and all you ever do is ask the men around you what they think about something, okay. that's not really a position of power. What about the idea of um, locker rooms and just the idea that, and I've seen this firsthand over 25 years, uh, players will talk to women first. No, I, I, you know, I, I didn't spend a ton of time in locker rooms, full disclosure. Okay. Um, you know, I have, I have, you know, friends and, and colleagues who, who do that much more. Um, you know, the time that I did spend, it's just an absolute scrum and everybody's sticking their mic out. So I didn't necessarily see that. Um, but you know, I, I, I don't doubt that it's true. I, I find that this generation coming up, the athletes today are much more used to seeing women in those positions. So it's not, well, as I, weird I, think to they, them. I think they hate the media. If, if we're stereotyping, and I don't mean to stereotype, but I think athletes uh, have started to develop such a distrust of the media. When I was coming up, I think I'm a little older than you. When I was coming up in sports radio, I was in the 90s. 
uh, I went out boozing with players. I mean, I hung out with players all the time um, because I wasn't trying to break anything. I what, didn't have a Twitter account that I was trying to get clicks on. I wasn't, mm-hmm. I, I, I literally, I didn't care if a player came up to me at a, at a, at a, at a, at a there was this diner that we hung out that when I worked for the Mariners, we would hang out at this diner and just sit around this big table just till all hours of the night. And one guy told me he was getting traded and I didn't do anything (laughs) because you know what? All the players in that room trusted me. And I don't Mm -hmm. think that trust exists. I don't care if it's man, woman, I don't care if it's a llama. It doesn't matter. I don't think that there's a connection with players. And I think COVID has made a major dent in that because now it's all zoom. Oh, I agree. And and, and there's no one-on-ones and what you never see anymore. And correct me if I'm wrong is you don't see the profile of the third baseman for the white Sox because when would the media reach out to him? Whereas pre pandemic, you know, any good reporter could find time with this third baseman, whoever he may be. And either in the clubhouse, in the dugout, on the field, during batting practice. And now the media is so detached. And I think that's a change that's going to be somewhat permanent. Well, I, you know, I know that we've all sort of wondered now that they've realized, now the teams have realized they can do everything by Zoom and do everything at arm's reach. Are we ever arm's length? Are we ever going to get the access that we had before? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that maybe that'd be true in men's sports. I don't think it's true in women's sports. I think that, you know, the, well, the women of sports, the, the, you never went in the locker room anyway. But, but not just that. I mean, the, you see lots of profiles of women in the WNBA and women on the U.S. team. And, you know, Miran Fader is writing a book right now on Giannis. Um, I think she does great profiles. So um, I don't know. I mean, yeah, those days have probably changed, but I wasn't right, around but in order for, for those her to days, get so. Giannis, in order for her to talk to him directly, she has to go through eight media relations people, whereas two years ago she would go up to him and tell her what she tell him what she he was doing and he would either bless it or not and 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 there's a chance because i i do believe that three out of four athletes are really good people it's the the one out of four that ruin it for the for them and give athletes a bad name and this idea that most pro athletes are pretty good guys or girls whatever sport it is and I think that there's that possibility. If someone wanted, if I wanted to have Naomi Osaka on this podcast, I, which is something we've, we've, I've been talking to Nissan about for about four years now. Um, now it would have to be through 17 Zoom connections and PR people and publicists and all that stuff. And I think that's the lost art of journalism that's never coming back. I think that it's always going to be there's that wall. Because the more and more players that realize that their messages can get out, you saw during the NBA, NBA free agency, the players said on their Instagrams where they were going, not reporters. And I tease NBA reporters because all you have to be a good NBA reporter, all you have to do is follow these guys because they tell you everything. They're like sieves. I was never, I mean, I was never in journalism at that point. I was, you know, and I've always been a columnist, um, mm. you know, so, I mean, maybe I've always felt that wall between athletes because um, you know, I, I write about, I do write about domestic violence and sexual assault and, and things like that. And I, I, you know, I've, I've never felt really the desire to, to be friends with athletes. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've always looked at them, I guess, at a little bit of a remove. Do you get, okay. So, so then the final question that we asked all month is what do you say to the lady, uh, usually young that is getting into this business for the wrong reasons and you can see it from a mile away. And what about that person? I'm not naming names, but we, you've seen them. I've seen them. There are women who will dress inappropriately, act inappropriately, be inappropriate. And what I always say is the, the fight that women have for respect, these people set for every step forward. It's like two steps back. What do you make of that young lady who's now currently 26 has an Instagram following and is at every ballpark slash stadium. I mean, I don't, I mean, I'm not going to be grudge. I mean, I did stuff when I first got into this industry that I wouldn't do now, Um, you know, wrote things on like, you know, the best butts in the NFL and stuff like that, because that's what I felt like. The best butts. Yeah. I I did a story and Oh God, Barstool sports will never let me forget it. Um, It was like 2006 (laughs) or seven. And it was like the best tight ends in the NFL. And it ran on this site called Lemon Drop, which is kind of like BuzzFeed. Um, 
Yeah, and <laughs> I mean, I did research. <laughs> yeah, I just picked like ten guys, and I was like, oh, all right, here you go. Um, you know, because that's what was offered to me, and I wanted to be in the industry so badly. Um, I I just feel like those people, you know, if I I don't know what the wrong reason is for getting into the industry, I just feel like we're they're on a different path. Like, you know, first of all, there's room for all of us. Um, you know, we're not in comp- women are not in competition with each other. If there is room for 10 billion trillion white guys in this industry, then there's room for all the women too. So I just, I don't feel like, um, I'm on the, I'm in competition with them and we're just on different trajectories. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to marry an athlete. I don't, I don't care about being on TV. Um, I don't necessarily care about, you know, hosting my own show on some, you know, giant platform. I just want to write about sports and that's all I ever wanted to do. And that's why I got into this industry. And I've been lucky enough that, you know, someone paid me to write a book, which was great. And I have, I'm in an outlet now that pretty much lets me write what I want. And, um, you know, there's, you know, the thing for women is so many of us are just forging our own path because there really haven't been that many women that we can look at and say, I want to be the next Frank DeFord, or I want to be the next Ring Lardner, or I, you know, there just aren't women for us to look at. So we're all just kind of doing our own thing. And, um, you know, however you figure it out, as long as you're not harming anyone else, I think is okay. Okay. Um, who are women that you... I don't, I don't want to say wanted to emulate, but who are women that you admired that blazed the path before you? Melissa Isaacson. I was in college. She was covering the Chicago Bulls for the Chicago Tribune, and which I just thought was the greatest thing in the world. That there was a woman as the main beat reporter for the Chicago Bulls um, during then, the Jordan you didn't years. see her on TV. You read no. her articles. Yeah. Yeah. And for journalism school, we had to apply we had to have a subscription to a newspaper I think everyone in my class had a subscription to the New York Times yeah but I had the Chicago Tribune because I wanted to read Melissa Isaacson that's awesome um Andrea Kramer has always been a great hero of mine um Mary Carrillo you know those are the women that I saw Pam Oliver you know those are the women that I saw on TV doing things that I wanted to do and so um I've been really lucky because as I've made my way in this career um Leslie Visser inexplicably has become a friend who sends me all kinds of encouraging text messages all the time. Andrea Kramer. Yeah. She's like a fairy godmother, you know, who's always there to pick me up. And, um, you know, we had Mary Carrillo come on the podcast and she told Jane and I what huge fan she is, you know, and it's just, it's kind of surreal. And Melissa Isaacson had me come talk to her class at Northwestern and, you know, she's someone, yeah. I mean, it's bizarre that these women are now in my life other than just on a newspaper page. Um, but yeah, they've all been really inspiring to me. How can a person listening to this um, help? How can, uh, besides buy your book, <laughs> because the link yeah, will be in buy the, the book. Notes, buy a book. <laughs> <laughs> I just answered the own, my own question. Um, how can, uh, whether it's a guy or a girl, whether it's young or old, you know, this audience ranges uh, from people. There'll be people in their 60s that are listening. There'll be people in their 20s that'll, that'll listen to this. When, how can somebody hear this plight, read what you've written, um, and understand the absolute vitriol that you receive just on a daily basis? Mm-hmm. Um, how can people help? Just to be kinder to you? Like, I, I don't know. I, I, just, I don't know. I, I, I feel lost. I feel lost about a lot of things because I didn't get yeah. to pick whether whether I was a guy or a girl. Yeah. You know? The people that aren't nice to me are not going to be nice or to me because I asked them to be. Um, <laughs> you know, I think it starts with just standing up to bullies when you see them, whether it's on the street, whether it's in school, whether it's, you know, at a party, no matter where you are, just don't let people treat other people like trash in front of you. I, I think that we've really come to this place where it's been normalized and, you know, we call it a clap back or he was talking trash to this person or they have beef when it's really just one person bullying and harassing another person. And I just think that we need to sort of draw a line in the sand everywhere, not just online. I mean, we have the president of the United States bullying people for four years and we all just sat by and watched it and pretended like this was normal. It's not normal. Um, and when you see it, you know, you see it happening, call it out. And, you know, I, I always have guys say, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to be a white knight and run to your rescue. Sometimes I would love for someone to come running to my rescue, you know, cause it sucks. And there's days when you're just too exhausted to deal with it. Um, you know, so, you know, you don't have to intervene constantly on Twitter because God knows that's how you spend the rest of your life. But, you know, <laughs> in, in life, pick out those really bad moments and say something. Don't just stand there. 
That's a great answer. And, and there's definitely uh, it, it's, it's not easy. It's a it's a it's a tangled web. You know, I, I mentioned I, I think that it's become more polarizing because of this 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 virus. Um, and I thought that everything was fought about everything. And you couldn't say stick to sports because sports were right in the middle of everything. Mm -hmm. It was the NHL didn't protest fast enough, whatever the hell that means. Um, you know, I gave credit to, to hockey, for example, when they extended their collective bargaining agreement for five years during the pandemic, mm -hmm. whereas baseball has a collective bargaining agreement that's expiring and they had to play that hodgepodge 2020 season. And just to, to, to say that they could, because they, you know, they, they felt this social responsibility and they're a mishmash and, and, and they, they don't, they're headed for Armageddon. I think it's going to be hysterical when the vaccine comes out and every stadium is full capacity. And we're at this point where sports are finally back and that's when baseball is going to shut down. And if yeah, exactly people, right. You thought people were mad then. Then just wait till what will happen now. They'll never come back. And I don't think I don't think young people give a crap about baseball anyway. I, I mean, I, I I just don't see that. What is your um, favorite sport to cover or watch? And nowadays, has that changed? I feel kind of down about everything right now. I think I've really hit a pandemic wall, and I definitely didn't feel you know baseball has always been my love and I also love soccer um I grew up in a town where everybody plays soccer inexplicably right. um in the 80s we all just grew up with soccer kids. Marlboro played soccer <laughs> is that where Tony Miola is from is he is from he near there no. yeah I think he might be anyway um I love soccer um and it, but baseball is you know how can you not be romantic about baseball right I mean that's that's sort of the 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 truth so I, I love covering baseball. I love watching baseball. I haven't been excited about any sports for quite some time. And I did not feel about opening day. Like I usually do where I jump out of bed and I'm like, happy opening day, you know, right. um, everything just feels sort of muted and depressed. Do you think and it's your experience out. that you've seen too much. I, I feel that way about baseball. I, I, you know, I've covered that sport for 27 years and I just, I don't look at it the same. Yeah. I think some of it is just once you pull back the curtain and you meet some of the people and you know, some of the things that happen behind the scenes, I think it really takes the bloom off the rose in a lot of ways. Um, the Ricketts have certainly done that for me with the Chicago Cubs, who I used to live and die for. Um, when they were crying poverty during the, 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 the pandemic and like, all you have to do is open up their books for oh, 2019, the 2018, I mean, the 2017. I mean, how far do you want to go back? I mean, well, it's, and and it's, it's having it was the fundraisers Cubs for and the Cardinals. And I was like, how disconcerting. Yeah. And I mean, it's having fundraisers for Trump at Wrigley Field. It's, you know, buying up the entire neighborhood and owning every every building in Wrigleyville and then saying you don't have any money for payroll because you spent it all on real estate. I mean, it, the whole thing is just ridiculous. Um, yeah. there's uh, And then I think the pandemic has a lot to do with it, too. There's just so many bigger things happening right now. And certainly I found baseball to be a nice distraction over the course of the past couple of days since opening day, but nothing like it felt last year and I, you know, or any time before this. And uh, last year, I guess, was weird, too. But, you know, 2019, um, I really hope that that feeling comes back someday. I miss it. I miss feeling that way about baseball. And I see people on Twitter who clearly still feel that way about baseball. And I'm envious. Yeah, but they're because... all over 35. You don't know. Be serious. You don't follow one person under 35 that tweets about baseball. Probably not. Probably not. I hadn't thought about it that way, but yeah, that's probably true. I just find, you know, it's really funny how, you know, when, when I worked for the league, I worked for major league baseball and I just saw where the bodies are buried and I saw things that I can't unsee. And I remember, you know, seeing it from that level and it doesn't have the same point. And Daryl, you know, passing away probably has a lot to do with it, but it just represents um, something that's challenging. But I will also say the quality of the sport has gone down. Yeah, it's no it's fun when such, nobody can hit the ball. It's such a low, it's so many swings and misses and it's so many strikeouts yeah. and the, the everybody throws a hundred miles an hour and it's just kind of dumb. And these managers are like these pawns where everything comes from an office and, you know, everything's pre-scripted and all that stuff. And it just seems like the majesty, the romance is gone. Yeah. I, you know, I feel a, a lot of, for me, had to do with Addison Russell's uh, domestic violence suspension, the way the Cubs right. handled that. Um, the way, you know, I write in the book about them calling my boss and complaining about me talking about it on the radio and tweeting about it. Um, 
the way you know just the, the way the 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 things the the whole thing was very frat housey right like 2016 cubs the world series win like it just it was very um i don't know frat housey i don't know how else to describe it and i think a lot of women felt somewhat excluded from that experience just because you know it's it's a bunch of young guys working in the office you've got a manager who you know someone writes a huge blog about how one of his players abused her he doesn't even bother to read it um you know a lot of comments from Joe Madden that really bothered me. A lot of comments from the front office that really bothered me. Um, I rolled this Chapman, you know, bringing a Chapman in and, and all that kind of stuff. It just, you know, I wanted to win, but not at the expense I didn't understand of my baseball the applause fan. for a Chapman. Oh, well, they were so that happy makes two of us. Came and I was just like, that makes two it's of not us. like he's coming off of a leg injury. You know what I mean? He's not like Tiger Woods. Yeah. I, no, I didn't I, understand that. And then he, you know, after Theo Epstein assured us all that he knew exactly what was expected of him, they asked him about it the next day. And he was like, I don't know what you're talking about, you know, and the whole thing was just ugly. And I know a lot of people uh, cared only about that World Series win and that's it. But it feels like that's when some of the shine started coming off it for me. The, um, you know, and we didn't talk a lot about your personal story, but, and I hadn't thought of this until th this conversation. Um, when you're covering sports and you're covering these tough issues and bad things, when Harvey Weinstein happens or Kevin mm -hmm. Spacey or any, any one of these disgusting stories, um, I think about the story that uh, Maggie Gray ha had where she had her credential taken away from WFAN. Maggie's a friend of mine. She's been on this podcast. Love and Maggie. She, she, um, you know, she comes out and calls basically James Dolan a hypocrite because he was like Harvey Weinstein's best friend. And, mm -hmm. you know, for him to say he was shocked was, was, was kind of kidding. And mm -hmm. this was not a sports story. It was more of a pop culture entertainment kind of story. But when you're seeing that, how much of an impact did it have on you? Because you had a story to tell, had you publicly revealed that again, I yeah. did my research. I did not know. Yeah, I did. I talked about it publicly in 2013 for the first time. Um, and, you know, my parents didn't know. My family didn't. I mean, How nobody. How old were you, I, if you don't mind my asking? I was in college. It was senior, my senior year of college, spring break. Okay. So I was 22, um, wow. just turned 22. Um, and, and it's, you know, I don't talk about it that much because it's not really relevant to, okay. you know, a lot of things. I, I think it's that, you know, I, I was very upset. I mean, when I read, so I read To Catch and Kill, uh, Ronan Farrow's right. book about about breaking the Harvey Weinstein story. And, yep. um, you know, that, that struck a chord. It's a yep. really good book. Struck a chord in a lot of ways. Um, but things that bother me much more are things like Felicia Somnes being told she can't cover sexual assault cases because she is a sexual assault survivor. Mm. I mean, that kind of stuff is, that is, I mean, congratulations to the Washington Post for coming up to George McCaskey's level of thinking, who infamously said that uh, sexual assault survivors are are uh, biased against their rapists, which is like, duh. Um, and so, the Washington you know, Post is the, is the only paper that had four, the, the, the four sports, the beat writer was a woman. Mm -hmm. This was like two or three years ago. It was a woman was the lead beat writer for the Capitals, the Washington, the football team, the the, the Nationals and the, the, what are they called? The Wizards. Yeah. Yeah, but that's that's the thing. I mean, that's why it feels so much feels like one step forward, two steps back. Hmm. Um, you know, uh, are we going to start saying, you know, if you, um, you know, are a family that comes from money, you can't cover rich people anymore? Or, you know, I mean, it, it, it's such a ridiculous thing. And I took that personally. And I know that, you know, I have had people say to me for years, well, you shouldn't be allowed to talk about this because you're clearly biased because you have an agenda. And I'm always like, yeah, I was I was raped. I also defended rapists, you know, and so I mean, I think that, you know, the idea that if you had this experience happen to you, you can't put it aside and be objective or, or don't have an informed opinion is um, really insulting. And that kind of stuff bugs me way more. Well, no, the reason why I asked it is I can't imagine like you're sitting at home, you, you know, you, you're on the couch or you're on your patio, whatever you were saying you have, and you were, you were just hanging out and all of a sudden you see a story like um, the Louis CK story. And then yeah. you're like, look at this schlub like there i i just didn't see any joy in in, in any of that um hmm. I, you know I'm well, there's joy in watching him get canceled i mean i took great joy in that okay um <laughs> no no but you i i was like this is disgusting i'm so sorry it happened you know what i mean i'm it's awful that it happened 
Yeah. I don't, I mean, I don't necessarily, I'm not a person that has like flashbacks. I don't get triggered every time, okay. you know, I, I hear a sexual assault story. Um, sometimes, you know, someone will say something that that'll sort of remind me like, Oh, I know exactly how that feels exactly how I felt, but it was long, you know, long ago enough for me that I don't feel like I'm, you know, on the verge of, you know, and some women never get there and, and men right. too. I had plenty, after I came forward, I had plenty of men reach out to me and tell me that they were sexually assaulted as well. Mm. Um, some people never get and there. And was that um, all through social media also? Yeah. A lot of people just sending me private messages saying, you don't know me. I, you know, I, I was raped and I just wanted to say, you know, thanks for speaking out. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's a, a ridiculous amount of people walking around with these things in their backgrounds. Um, so, you know, and, and it was long ago enough for me that, uh, you know, I think I have some distance from it. In this time of toxicity, uh, and when the book was released, um, tell me a little bit, I just want to end on a positive note. Tell me about the support and who out there, you mentioned people that were like your inspirations, but who, where, where was the support, the public support from people? Because remember, I found out about the book through social media. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I followed you for a decade and I knew who you were, um, but I didn't know, you know, when I saw the book was when Jane McManus tweeted it and Katie Strang tweeted it and all, yeah. all these people who I like tweeted this book. And I was like, holy crap, she had this book, you know? And then when I, I, and I told the story, once I realized that we were doing all women, I texted you immediately. I said to Jane, I said, you, you know her? <laughs> She goes, do I know her? I do a podcast <laughs> her. What are you talking about? I'm like, how do I get a hold of her? And like, it was something that I, I had wanted to have you on because I think this story needs to be told. And I applaud the honesty that you're telling it with because I needed people who subscribe to this podcast. I wanted them to know this is something that you deal with literally every day. And because of what you're trying to accomplish in your career, you can't just say, I am out of this. Like, I, I, I'm gone. Yeah, I mean, the anyway, whole I book hope is... you have a burner account and I hope it's a lot. of. <laughs> I don't because I'm afraid that I will screw it up and pull like a Jerry <laughs> Colangelo and get found out. So I don't, Jane and I talk about this all the time. I'm like, I would be outed within a week. And she's like, yeah, me too. So I don't have a burner account, but um. Uh, you know, it, the book is not just about harassment. Obviously, there's a lot of topics in it. There's equal pay for women in sports. There's um, the way women view each other as competition. There's sexual assault and domestic violence. There's um, the women, the history of women in broadcasting. I mean, and for every single chapter that I wrote about women talk to me for it. And, and, you know, in the chapter on me too, in sports, I said every single woman I talked to for that chapter cried. Um, including some who, you know, after talking to them said, no, I, I can't go on the record with this. I'm sorry. You know, I'm sorry. I wasted your time. Um, but talking to that, just the fact I'm that sure the, it wasn't a waste of time because it, it was you. absolutely. And I'm glad that I could be the person that listened to them tell that story. Um, you know, it's, uh, I, I was incredibly honored by the women that, that agreed to be in the book. Soledad O'Brien, Jamal Hill, Mina Kimes, oh, uh, Kelsey Trainer, uh, Soraya Nadi McDonald. I mean, just these incredible women who are incredibly accomplished were willing to talk about things that they don't necessarily talk about publicly a lot. And so I was really honored that they trusted me with those stories. And then when the book came out and, you know, I really feel like we've turned a corner in, in broadcasting and in media with women where we really are trying much more to lift each other up these days than to be in competition with each other. And so to see all these women like Laura Oakman and Andrea Kramer and, you know, all these incredible women tweet about it, tell people to read it, share, you know, Carrie Champion. And it just, it meant the world to me. And it was, um, you know, so writing cool. a book is a lonely process that kind of sucks. <laughs> and you, then you get like Jeff Perlman says, right. then you get two weeks in the sun and my two weeks in the sun were He's been good. on this podcast. We had him on when he wrote the USFL book, which was amazing. Oh, it's a great book. <laughs> what a great, yeah. that was a really fun episode. Yeah. Um, it, it, uh, and I'm not, I don't know if you put this in your book, like I said, um, uh, there's this one story that I was told, and I'll tell you how I found out the story from the late 80s of Susan Waldman, mm -hmm. uh, Susan Waldman, a, a pioneer, uh, she's in, she's, she gets this job as a Yankee beat reporter, she's the only woman on the beat, and she's in the exhibition stadium of Toronto, and this um, George Bell, hit two home runs 
and she goes up to interview George Bell and he won't talk to her because she's a woman. Mm-hmm. And Jesse Barfield in front of the whole team, Jesse Barfield, who's a prince among men, he stands up in the clubhouse so everybody could hear it, including George Bell, and said, I didn't hit two home runs, but I did have an RBI single. You are welcome to come interview me anytime. And how I heard that was Jesse Barfield had been hired as the hitting coach of the Mariners when I worked for the Mariners. And Mark McLemore told me, Mark McLemore says, you want to hear good Jesse Barfield? I said, what's Jesse Barfield like? I said, I just remember him. He had a rocket arm. That's all I knew. Like, you know, cause when we were growing up, we didn't know these players personalities. I didn't know anything. Yeah. And he said, and he told me that story. And that's how I heard it, that that story resonated to players really, really impressed me. And I thought I've always admired Susan and I've told Susan this, I've always admired her to such the level, but I know ne- I, I liked her before I heard that story. Mm-hmm. So I would imagine people are going to read this book and they're going to hear about people that they know, or at least they think they know, and they're going to hear this story. And that's what I think the services, the, the justice that is coming from this. Yeah. And along the same lines, one of the people, I, I didn't talk to many men for this book, but one of the guys I did talk to was Tommy John, because oh, uh, when John. Melissa, when Melissa Ludke back in 1976, who's become a great friend of mine and she's heavily featured in, in one of the chapters, she sued major league baseball to allow her to go into the locker room in 1976 when she was working for the, uh, working for sports illustrated. We had a and, Diane uh, Shaw on this podcast, right? Yeah. The there's podcast. a whole group of women. Um, yep. and, uh, you know, and, and they tell these great stories, you know, Claire Smith talks about standing outside the locker room crying and Steve Garvey coming out, you know, to her, yep. to her rescue yep. and Tommy John uh, sort of rode to Melissa's rescue. And he was the guy that went into the Dodgers locker room and said, look, she's a reporter. You know, can you let her, can, do we care if she comes in? And they all said no. And so, you know, he really was like, he really was sort of an unsung hero in that situation because he uh, was one of the leaders of the Dodgers and he went to his teammates and was like, are we really going to be the jerks who won't let a woman in the locker room? Um, So yeah, there's a lot of those kinds of stories in there too. Tommy John, a quick story on Tommy John. Then we'll we'll wrap this up. Um, When I took the gig, so I was with the Mariners in 2000. The Mariners played the Yankees in the ALCS. They beat the White Sox. Uh, and then they beat, the, they played the Yankees. And I met the people at Major League Baseball. So I, I wind up getting this job at Major League Baseball just because of luck that the Mariners happened to take me there. They didn't know I was from New, New York. And they didn't know I, I grew up in New Jersey. And I meet the people at Major League Baseball. And it was, I was hired to join Major League Baseball to host a show with Tommy John. And I meet Tommy and we do demo shows and we're all ready. And Tommy had a family emergency and couldn't Mm. do the first two months. Ah, bummer. And it was mixed in the message. This is my favorite thing about agents. Um, It was mixed in the message. There was a chance they weren't going to do the show because Tommy John couldn't do it. Mm. And I say, there's there's this famous line where I say to the guy, is Tommy John the only pitcher that could ever do a goddamn radio show? Like, is Tommy, and it's so random because he's such a kind man. He's such a nice guy. And I felt bad, but he was my partner for about an hour. <laughs> it's funny. I've known his son, Tommy John yes. III, yep. for, for quite some time, but I'd never known Tommy. And I you uh-huh. know, texted him and said, hey, can I talk to your dad for this book I'm writing? And so all of a sudden I get a call and I, and I didn't answer. And he it can was, talk, you know, man. It, it would have been the easiest radio show. I wouldn't have no- had to say four words. No kidding. So I get this call and I check my voice message and it's like, Julie, Tommy John. And I still saved it because I play it for people. Um, but you know, he, I talked with him for probably an hour and a half and I think maybe 20 minutes of it was about what we were talking about in the book. And the rest of it was, you know, Great golf game, and, weather. Yeah. yeah. Stories. I mean, yeah, he's great. Julie, I, I appreciate uh, your time. Uh, the book is called sidelined. The link to it will be in the show notes. So if you're listening to this podcast, just go to the show notes and you'll see a link and we'll do one of those short links so people can see it. And, you know, it'll be like, uh, you know, five letters or some, whatever it is. <laughs> and, and, and then it comes out and you can get this book. Uh, it's, it's on my Amazon list. It's going to it is something that I, I want uh, everybody to uh, not just read, but also enjoy. Enjoy that uh, there is some place where we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. I hope so too. Um, normally when I end the podcast, I always say, uh, how can people find you online? You all know how to find her online. <laughs> and normally what I say, and I have this standard line, we're almost at 300 episodes and I say this standard line every time. Um, 
if you have any issues with this podcast, do me a favor, reach out to the guest directly and leave me the hell out of it. Tell you about <laughs> this. Don't do that. <laughs> we'll do the opposite. If you have any issues, do it. Reach out to me. Don't worry about Julie. She's doing <laughs> she's doing a hell of a job and it's great. Her articles are in Deadspin. The podcast is called The Ladies Podcast. Ladies right? Room. The Ladies Room. The Ladies Room. It's with Jane McManus and Julie. It's a bathroom joke, Seth. Yes, I, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I got the joke. <laughs> Julie, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. We appreciate the time as always. And uh, thank you for, again, uh, supporting the podcast. We will be back as we get closer and closer to episode 300. And yes, I do know what 300 is going to be. No, I'm not telling you. We'll see you next week. If you want me to stay, I'll be around today to be available for you to see. I'm about to go. To stay here, I got to be me. You'll never be in doubt, that's what it's all about. You can't take me for granted and smile. Count on grace, I'm gone. Forget reaching me by phone, because I promise I'll be gone for a while. When you see me again, I hope that you have been the kind of person. 